a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. All right, we're here again. It's Nathan Romas with you. And today we have Mike Elliott, president of the Edmonton Police Association in the hot seat. And I'll give you a little bit of background on Mike. He's from Loon Bay, Newfoundland and Labrador. He was a volunteer firefighter for six years. He completed his BA in political science at Memorial University in Newfoundland. Then he enrolled in the Royal Canadian Air Force as a pilot, after which he transitioned over to policing in 2005. And that's when he joined the Edmonton Police Service. He is currently a staff sergeant, uh, president of the Edmonton Police Association, as we said, and also a director with the Canadian Police Association. Mike does a number of uh, advocacy work, and he does this for first responders experiencing mental health issues. And he's received a number of awards and recognition, such as the Queen's Jubilee Medal, the Jim Dempsey Award for Community Service, and the Order of Merit of Police Forces. So welcome, Mike. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, so we'll start at the beginning for you and tell us kind of what was it like growing up in Loon Bay? Because I don't have a clue where that is. <laughs> I, I get you, Nathan. I don't think a lot of people do. It's um, If anyone can think of the island of Newfoundland, if they look on a map, they think Gander, or I guess would be in the middle, goes straight north to the coast. Um, there's a little town of maybe 120 people. There's no corner store. There's no gas station. There's no street lights. Um, there's literally nothing there. Um, majority of the people were uh, fisher and they were on the, on the sea or um, in the woods, I guess, for log cutting and whatnot. And uh, so it's very, very quiet right now. I think the average meeting age is probably 70 there now. So it was more of a retirement place than anything. Wow. Yeah. So you had to make up your own, um, I guess, activities growing up. So it was a lot of time outdoors, a lot of fishing, a lot of time uh, up to the cabin, I'd say, going on skidoo, or I guess some people say sled, but we always call everything skidoo's home, and um, or out on the water in some in some form. So how do you go from growing up there, where there's nothing going on, yeah. as you said, to uh, get into policing? And I guess you also attended college out there. Yeah, so um, for some reason, I've always been drawn to policing. Um, my mother kept this book that at, it covered like grades K to 12. And every time you finish a grade, there's a page on the back and said, what do you want to do when you grow up? Mm -hmm. And it was police officer, police officer, police officer. So that's all I've ever wanted to do when I finished in grade 12. I went to uh, the town of Lewisport, which is, you know, about 30 kilometers away. And that's a local RCMP detachment. Uh, I wrote the exam. I remember the, um, the corporal coming out and said, hey, Mike, you passed. However, uh, we're looking for indigenous or we're looking for females. So I'm like, okay, what do I do? And uh, my father is in construction and he said, Mike, do something with your life. Don't follow me in construction. It's a hard life. It's ups and downs. You follow the economy. Mm -hmm. So um, off to Memorial University in St. John's. And I got to be honest, I started and I still didn't know what to do. So I took general studies for a year, uh, but I sort of fell in love with uh, political science. I really liked it and um, obtained my uh, BA. But then I go, well, what do you do with a BA in poli-sci? going to politics and it's like, I don't know. Um, so I ended up by enrolled in King's College in uh, Nova Scotia for journalism. And uh, my brother flies with Air Canada. And at the time he said, Mike, 
come on up for the summer and take flying lessons. He said, you know, the flying agency is booming right now. And I said, not a bad idea. So went up, started taking flying lessons, which is on the base in Shearwater, which is across the harbor from Halifax. Um, got my private license, went to my, you know, kept going and met some friends in the military. And they're like, Mike, what are you doing spending all this money, you know, racking up line of credit, et cetera, mm-hmm. for your flights? And he said, you know, the military will train you. And I was like, what? I never thought about the military. So um, the funny part is I, I remember going and talking to the master corporal and recruiting. And he, he looked at my, he said, well, you got a degree, my friend. Uh, I know your marks probably are not the best, but degree is a degree. So here we are. So off to St. John's of Richelieu. C's get degrees, right? Yeah, that's right. So off to St. John's of Richelieu, just outside of uh, Montreal for uh, basic training, French training, and um, off to Portage of Prairie. And that's why I enrolled in uh, flight training from there. In Portage of Prairie? Portage of Prairie. Manitoba? Yeah, Portage of Prairie, Uh Manitoba. And uh, then I went to the Big Two in Moose Jaw for additional training. Then you go back to uh, Moose Jaw again uh, for helicopter training. And... um, from there, I know I was posted here at 408 Squadron, um, 406 Squadron in Shearwater, and 408 here in Edmonton. And while I was here in Edmonton, that's when I met a couple of colleagues of mine, and um, we became friends. And so they're full-time police officers and in the reserves. And then I told them about my story growing up in Loon Bay, and they're like, Mike, the police here are hiring like, like crazy. We need people. I, mm-hmm. I never thought about municipal policing. So uh, while in Halifax, I applied to Calgary Edmonton, Ottawa, um, and, and Halifax. And within three months, Edmonton had accepted me. And I started February 5th, 2005. Wow. So here I am. So going back a little bit, uh, when you were doing the flight school, do you maintain that stuff to this day? No, I haven't flown since end of 2004. Okay. Yeah. And what, what were you flying? So you're doing airplanes? And helicopters? No, heli- so my private license is on fixed wing. Okay. And got my commercial license on fixed wing. And in the military, it was a helicopter. Okay. Yeah. Did you do any deployments or what was kind of your main, what were your main missions while you were there? Is it a lot of humanitarian stuff? No, I got to say it was one of my uh, disappointments for myself because um, I remember being here in Edmonton looking for a deployment and um, I forget what rotation was over him. I think it was Bosnia at the time. And they were like, no, um, Gagetown is over there. And um, I remember going up 406. And when I got to 406, I heard, oh, 408's being deployed over there. Mm. So um, my, um, but one thing about flying in the military, I got to say it, I wasn't comfortable with it. Um, I was always nervous about it. And um, I can tell you, it didn't uh, didn't go well for me from that standpoint, because I, I was constantly on edge. And um, I got to thank, I wish I could remember my major's name and Shearwater. He's the one that really helped me uh, come see some light, come to light, I guess, and help me transfer, get out, and get in here. So um, I'm drawing a blank on him. But um, well, what was, uh, what would be uncomfortable about it? Like, what do you mean? Well, if you're a civilian flying, if I just take a, you know, 172 aircraft up for flying, like if, if I want to go at 4,500 feet, 4,700 feet, it doesn't matter. If I want to go, you know, 100 knots, 150 knots, it doesn't matter. Um, the military pressure for me was, um, it had to be right. Cause precision, mm. right. So they said, you know, 6,000 feet, 300 knots. They didn't say 302 knots or 299. It was everything that was on. And, okay. uh, the anxiety that was building up in me was crazy. I struggled with it. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to lie. My, my colleagues will say I probably got along with them quite well, but I struggled with the flying. 
you know, I've heard that from other people that have had military experience in here. And, uh, I remember that just from doing my training with the, uh, uh, RCMP where a lot of the stuff is about detail and precision and yeah, you really gotta, they they want you to be at a certain place at a certain time, do an exact thing. They told you, they didn't tell you this, they didn't tell you that they said this exact thing. So you gotta listen to the exact words that are given to you. Um, yeah. And that's, it's, it's very stressful. Yeah. It's very uh, stressful. And it was strange because private license, it came very easily for me. I had no problems with it in the military. I struggled. Mm. Yeah, I really, really did. So you transitioned over to policing. That was 2005. Yeah. February of 05. And what was that like, like getting hired here at, in 2005? Um, I was extremely excited. Never been West before I was staying with uh, my, a friend of mine was in the military and sleeping on his futon, um, <laughs> down on one Jasper and 110. And, uh, used to walk to headquarters every day and, or actually rollerblade at the time. And, uh, that's where we went through our training. And I, I gotta say it, I, I was concerned because when I leave in the military, you want that camaraderie. Mm-hmm. Probably similar to yourself when you left the RCMP, right? Coming over, you, you wonder about what's what's the um, the attitude and demeanor with everybody. But what I like coming here too is I, I felt the same sense, a sense of purpose and that group and that belonging as a team. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it went quite well. And there was a thing about five or six of us that were ex-military that joined. And um, fortunately or unfortunately, or fortunately or unfortunately, we were selected out. And it's like, oh, you're military? Drill. You're going to help us with drill. And I was like, uh, I'm Air Force. My drill is terrible. <laughs> it's like, let's get somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we call upon somebody like Barry Fairhurst to, uh, to help us out for that because Barry was a classmate of, uh, of mine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you get in and what's kind of, was it the same as it is today? Do you go to patrol first and then you kind of branch out from there depending on what your career aspirations are? Yeah. Um, I always want to be downtown, live downtown and um, yeah, end up, going to C4, I think back in the day when it was a little platoon style under uh, Sergeant Dan Doyle uh, was my first Serge. And um, started off from there. And I got to tell you, I get to get my training officers and they're like, okay, Mike, let's go to the Misericordia Hospital. I'm like, where? Mm-hmm. I had no idea about the city. So I had to literally get a map, glue it on my, um, paste it to my um, writing tablet. And uh, on days off, I would get, uh, I think it was called Com Free Magazines at the time for real estate. And I would find addresses and I'd have to go and try to find these. And I didn't have a vehicle here either. So um, taking a bus on foot, trying to find different things. So you didn't have computers in the police cars in that day? Uh, it was the MDT. It was a little, little time in a square, but no, there was no GPS or mapping mm-hmm. system whatsoever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, there's many times there'd be an address coming up and I'm like searching in the map going, where is that? And trying to find a direct route. Yeah, when I was with the Mounties, we had to do that. So I had a big map, like a rural map, and you learn how to read all the different rural roads, townships. Yeah. Uh, even within the town, when you get the new areas, uh, you know, the new development, it's all the same name for a street now. And it's just links, landings, crescents, you know, like then n- none of that means anything to me. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, that'd be even harder. At least, I guess, here downtown, if you were in downtown, it's a nice grid and it's just numbers. Well, I had to learn this North, even West, I think was a rule yeah. that uh, helped me out. But I know as further development came along, I was like, what, what does that mean? Like Millwoods Road? I have no idea. So yeah. um, how's your career kind of progressed? Like, what is, Where have you been? Um, so I started uh, downtown, stayed downtown for almost five years, uh, transferred to uh, 
south and south was just separated then it was south because it was all south division and they just separated southeast to southwest and i go into the old southwest the station um because i really want to go to beats and at the time under god i can't remember the chief before rod connect um was it boyd yeah mike boyd so what happened with the beats beat teams downtown basically disappeared so there was no beats downtown and that's something i really really wanted to because i had uh really aspire to a lot of my colleagues that were down like there was um Derek Tabaka I can think of oh there's a whole bunch of people I looked up to that were in Beats and I thought it was great work and seeing all the work that they did in the drug work that uh the community involvement the contacts that they had and I was like that's what I want hmm. and uh, I ended up going to Southwest and I uh, was there for maybe six eight months and I was lucky enough to get selected for White App Beats uh did my stint on White App for a number of years um, then moved on, it's called to a CLC, which is a community liaison constable. And, um, then I was very surprised because, uh, a good friend of mine, I call him a good friend, Paul Sinclair. Uh, he came to me and he said, Mike, I was like, you know, um, I need to take some time off and I'm going away for probably eight, nine months. And, um, I need somebody to go up in my spot. And I've talked to my superintendent or my inspector at the time. And he goes, uh, you're going up TA in my spot. And I said, I don't want it. And he goes, no, you're taking it. And by the way, I'm uh, suggesting you put him for promotion. And he handed over a binder. He had everything completed I ever done throughout my career in a binder for me. Oh. And he said, you're going to get promoted. And I went, I, I don't want to be promoted. I'm not interested in promoting. I'm loving what I do. And uh, my inspector came in and started talking to me. And he goes, no, we're backing you in Southwest. We want you to put in. So that would have been 2012, I think is the time. And uh, ended up getting promoted, uh, went to as a detective in state and southwest division. And um, while there, a sergeant position came open back on White Avenue. And um, always loved on the beat. So back I went to uh, to the beat. And then at the end of 17, well, in the year of 2017, um, I was getting a lot of colleagues saying, hey, elections are coming up. Um, you've been in... And, even in the association, I should let you know. So I got on in 2005, and in 2007, I was first elected into the uh, association. So I've been in the association ever since. Oh, wow. And, um, and so, yeah, it was 2017. A lot of colleagues said, Mike, we want to put in. I wasn't sure, pretty young in my career. And, but I took the leap of faith, and um, my colleagues fortunately made a decision to elect me in. Whether it's good or bad, I don't know right now, but uh, here I am. And uh, what, five years later, I'm still here. Yeah, because you've been president, yeah, five years. This is your second term. Yep. Right? Yeah. And they're so three-year terms. Yeah, in my, um, I guess, the latter stage of the uh, two of the three-year term, and I'm in year two of that, which is coming up now almost to completion. Okay. Um, so, yeah, let's uh, maybe get into some of the association work, which would be the bulk of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, tell us, how's that going? <laughs> I know it's busy. It's, um, There's always something every day. I got to say the, I think the association has evolved and, um, or I should say the work within the association has evolved. It's more, it's more scrutiny. Um, it's more litigious uh, than ever seen before. Like I'll say once upon a time, you'd always hear, Hey, if you get off probation, you're secure on the job. And, um, we've seen over the course of a number of years, a significant number of people have been suspended with or without pay or terminated. And, um, and I know there's consequences to what members do, and but we have to look at it as a duty of fair representation, and that's our role here as association is to provide fair representation regardless. But um, I got to say the association work is, like I said, is completely is evolving, and we have to evolve with it. And um, I just enjoy 
really work it. So the different aspects, I guess, for your listeners is that you may wonder like what I do as, as the association president. So it's, it's like a jack of all trades, master of nothing. And that sounds sort of weird saying that, but we have to look at, you know, bargaining. We're currently in bargaining right now with the city for a new contract. We got to look at discipline matters. So anything under the police act, law enforcement review board, criminal matters, uh, harassment issues. We look at postings, uh, make sure that the postings are, are fair and reasonable and follow the collective agreement from both sides. And I will state that um, I think sometimes both sides forget, and I say both sides, I mean the city and the service, a collective bargaining agreement is just that. Mm-hmm. All sides agreed to it. So we're going to make sure that people are adhering to the policy of the, of the CBA. Those are the two main functions of the association as well, right? So all the other things are kind of nice to have, but it's the bargaining and dealing with all the complaints. Yeah, I, I would consider that. Um, but we also want to, I think, a big component of the association too is a social aspect. And I know that's not the primary focus because it's not, when you get down to the bread and butter of what we do, it's looking at the members from discipline side, postings, grievances, and collective bargaining to make sure that uh, we can acquire reasonable wages and um, good benefits for our members because it's a stressful and difficult job, my friend, as you know out there. And, mm-hmm. and we got to look after the members more so even today. Yeah. So what do you kind of do on the, the daily basis? Um, is your day just full of meetings? Or I know you have a lot of travel involved in your job too because you got to meet with people from the Canadian Police Association, the Alberta one. Uh, there's a lot of different levels to association work. Yeah, it's, um, I think my predecessors did a very good job at this, but one of the things that when I came in with, I want to improve was uh, the relationships with the police commission, city council, um, members of parliament, MLAs. And uh, I can say in 2018, um, I, I think those relationships were built. I can tell you that I had great contacts with within the commission. And when I say great contacts, it's, it's nice to know that you can call somebody up and say, hey, can I have a coffee? I just want to talk about a situation. Or because we know the service has regular meetings with the commission and they provide updates, and which so they should, and they're responsible to report to the commission. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also say that uh, we can also provide um, potentially sometimes a different side to what's being presented. Or um, not only that, you can provide information to the commission or MLAs or politicians to say, what's it like out there as a police officer? Because um, from my perspective, I think a lot of citizens, including politicians, they acquire their information on policing through social media, through newspapers, and through their contacts, unless they have a, a contact within uh, within the police to find out what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's something that's uh, missing out there for that information to the citizens. I think that's probably the biggest thing I've seen since being in the association. I've only been here um, just coming up on 10 months, 11 months, and... I guess it'd be 10. Um, it's just seeing the, the who communicates with who and where people actually get their information. And uh, especially doing this podcast and having those direct contacts, so working front lines and in the gang work, and then having that direct contact with, uh, you know, Tyler Shandro did one of the episodes. We had Terry Bryant in here, Chief Firearms Officer, they get a very different perspective from the people that they talk to. And they're usually talking to the people, uh, you know, looking at things from the top down in a very high up perspective. But they're not getting, you know, the grit of what's going on out there. So I think that's missing from what a lot of people uh, are, are when they're talking about how police respond to things, how they deal with stuff. They don't realize how dangerous it is. Um, I know the, the, 
remember that had the incident where they were pushing somebody with a knife and that's a, a huge thing in the news right now. Um, I know a lot of members who look at that and say, like, that person had a knife and you decide to go up and shove them. Like there, there's a whole lot of other uses of force. And this was actually in the letters to the editor in one of the journal articles, uh, Edmonton Journal. And it was saying that, you know, um, there are a lot of other uses of force that were much higher that could have been used on that person. And this cop decided to shove somebody. Um, and that caused a huge outrage. But it, I don't think people realize just how dangerous it is out there. And when you're walking around, um, we'll call them the wolves, but there are a lot of wolves out there. And I think a lot of people aren't prepared for that. I and think everything's been made very soft in society for them. Well, uh, since you brought that incident up, if it's okay, we'll talk yeah. about that incident real yeah. quick. It's the right perspective on that. You always look to, this has been a violent couple of, Edmonton is a violent city. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to say it to the listeners, but if you look at the statistics that come out across Canada, Edmonton remains always towards the top in regards to violence. Now, in the past, what, two months, we've had multiple murders that occurred up in Saskatchewan, which were devastating to the Indigenous community, and a knife was used. Uh, two weeks ago, we had a homicide here in Edmonton with a knife. Uh, we had unfortunate, we had the homicides in Chinatown, and the people were crying out, we want more police and more contacts in that area. So what do we do? We bring in more people in that area, and lo and behold, a member gets flagged down of two women starting a fight or having a fight. The member rolls up. And you talk about officer safety or you talk about use of force. What's the first thing that we do is officer presence, mm -hmm. right? So officer presence showed up. It separated them. He trips the horn to try to get their attention. Gets out, provides verbal demands. Still won't listen. So what are the options to him? He could pull his gun mm -hmm. because he had, you know, the use of force continued to be looking at we're trained for. It says, yes, he could have used it. You and I both know and everyone out there that if he used his firearm, we'd be here today having a complaint about that. If he pulled his taser and used it, we'd be here today having a complaint about it because they would say excessive use of force. If he hit her with a baton, he would have said, oh, he's beating her, excessive use of force. And so he can't go hands-on with her because she's holding a knife, so he could be injured and or killed. And then the other option, you could say, why can this let her walk away? Okay, and if he lets her walk away and she assaults or stabs or kills somebody, then he's in trouble then because to say, you knew she had a knife and you did nothing to stop it. So he went in and pushed her, which is probably the lowest that anyone can ever consider. If you look at the video as well, she goes down, knife's dislodged, she's taken into custody, everyone's safe. So it's amazing how people look up and say that, um, you know, we want safety, but yet when the police step in and provide safety, then they complain about that safety. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, and unfortunately, I, I don't know if we're, misconstrued by Hollywood or the movies, this the use of force is not pretty. It's not, you know, when I hear people talk about why didn't they shoot the person in the hand? Well, mm -hmm. you know, when under stress and everything else, it doesn't work that way. So I actually applaud this member for what he did um, for one, because of the courage to get out there and two, for taking to look after the community because we've got to look after everyone and people I think are very short-sighted in that. Um, in addition to that, I know that there was a video put out and, um, uh, I'm really perturbed with, um, I wish I could remember the name of the person who posted the video, but there's the video is actually spliced. So there's a picture of the member pushing the female, and then the video gets spliced with a different member and talking to that member. So members of the community are going to look at that and go, oh, that's Constable. I'm not even going to mention his name, mm -hmm. but that's like Constable B. And so now he's being labeled as, oh, you're the person that did that. And that's slander and that's absolutely ridiculous. And they 
I gotta say, as the leader of the Bear Clan, owes that member an apology for posting that photo, which is uh, wrong, um, disrespectful, and now puts that person out there for libel as well. So it's it's, it's unfathomable what they did. Well, and also uh, the people who are complaining without any of the facts. It's does that not hurt your cause? I would think it would. If you're just putting out statements that are not based in uh, any sort of facts, then yeah, like you said, there's libel and there's other things that now they can be subject to. So yeah, and in addition to that, I can say that so there were people watching these two women and did nothing to step in and try to stop it, mm -hmm. but this continued to watch. And when police do, what do you do? You start filming it. So that tells me you're just out there. You're, you're out there watching. You're not out there to help. And so yeah. that's what's disrespectful and disappointing. Yeah, and I think that people also need to realize that too is, you know, what are you capable of? Are you actually helping people? And if you're just going to stand there and film it, well, you know, did did you call police first of all? If you didn't, then, then why are you even in the area? If you're not going to stop the fight and you're not going to call somebody to help, you know, the one being attacked with a knife, then are you just waiting there to get your two seconds of YouTube fame? So it's, uh, I think people need to realize just like you said, uh, and it's not something I would apologize for. This is a violent city and people haven't had real conversations about it. And that's why it's a violent city because we're not taking the right steps to actually make an impact on the criminals and the people doing this, uh, doing these crimes to the good citizens here and then the people who are paying our salaries and want to be protected. Yeah. And, and Nathan, I want to go a little further on that is, I think um, the service and our members do an excellent job of public safety. But the problem has been is that we've kept, I'll say like the boogeyman has been kept in the closet. And everyone, we've got this facade that everyone's going to take care of. Like me, I think we should release the daily highlights to the public to let them know what's actually occurring. It's not a scare tactic. We don't want to scare citizens, but we want to be realistic what's occurring in our, in mm -hmm. our city, in our backyards, in our neighborhoods, so they can get a true assessment themselves directly of what's occurring. Because right now, they're only getting bits and pieces because only major headlines, if it gets captured by the media or released by the service, gets out there. Or you get a video to see what's going on. Because um, members do fantastic work in the community every day, but the violent things that are occurring on a daily basis, the general population never hear about. Well, I've said this on other podcasts where we've had some of the guys that we talk to uh, that are involved in from organized crime to street crime, they say, you know, you used to spend 90% of your budget on fighting crime and 10% was doing other community-related stuff. Now you spend 50% of your budget on social justice work and 50% on fighting crime. And I think if you were to show people the real stats and some of the real uh, things going on when they're all tucked in safely in their beds at night, uh, I think they would have a very different opinion on how we spend our budget and whether we would be, you know, defunded or not. I think people would, uh, you would see a lot less of the social justice work going on and a lot more crime fighting. Well, if, if the, to me, if you want to get to the root cause in this is like, I find <laughs> people are quick to, um, always point the finger at police when they're involved in incidents, but no one ever looks upstream to find out what happened for those people to get down here. Why are we involved with this? Yes. Because if you look only but I think between two and six percent of all the budgets that go for healthcare actually go to mental health. So you you get people who are not getting the required help, and they're released 
or put out halfway houses or treatment, there's no treatment plans. And then they get into trouble or they call the police because there's a check on welfare or a social worker needs help with somebody and we have to respond. And everybody then points the finger at us as saying it's our responsibility when no one looks upstream from from the municipal, uh, provincial, and then the federal standpoint of where things are occurring. All right. So one of the things I wanted to talk about with you was uh, maybe lobbying kind of outside the Edmonton environment, but what the EPA's role is when you look at Alberta going up to the Canadian Police Association and forward. Sure. So um, in, in Alberta, the association, the Edmonton Police Association um, is also a part of the Alberta Federation of Police Associations. So that represents all municipal police services in the province. So for example, the RCMP, because they're federal, they do not belong to AFPA, AFPA. Um, so within AFPA, if you look right, so Edmonton's in there, we have Camrose, Camrose, Tabor, Lacombe, Lethbridge, Medicine Hat, Blood Tribe, Calgary. Um, and we're, we'd like to have the other Indigenous um, policing agencies join as well. The issues that come up sometimes because whether they fall under federal, um, but we do invite them to the table as well so they're part of in the discussions. And I find one of the benefit of AFPA is you get a small agency, say, such as Tabor, who could have like a dozen members. Uh, if they have a serious incident, um, do they have the... Uh, I guess, support? Do they have the knowledge? Do they have the financial ability to assist their members? So what AFPA can do is step in and help the smaller agencies when they have uh, a situation where somebody's going through a police act complaint or there's something that's got to be brought up to a uh, court of appeal that could affect policing right across the province. So um, the one of the benefits, like I said, uh, is AFPA. And so they can also lobby on behalf of um, citizens and police officers. So one that comes to mind is APA. Uh, lobbied a number of years ago for the pill press reform, right? Because we had uh, significant issues when fentanyl first started coming on the, on the scene. And uh, through uh, the border services, we identified that there were people in BC, Alberta, buying pill presses like crazy. And you and I both know in the average citizen, why, why would somebody order like four or five pill presses? What purpose yeah. do you have other than doing something probably illicit? So uh, lobbied the government in that, and that's why I think Alberta was, I, if memory is correct, one of the first provinces in the country to um, ban pill presses to be uh, <coughs> to be sent in. You have a specific reason to have that. So that's one thing that AFPA can do on, on behalf of uh, for public safety. And in addition to that, the Edmonton Police Association, a part of the Canadian Police Association, and that represents approximately 60,000 police officers uh, across the um, across the country. And uh, we meet uh, quarterly basis in Ottawa. And it's representatives right across the country on that. And what we try to do there is also try to lobby the government in regards to public safety and things that will benefit uh, the citizens and benefit uh, the police officers. Uh, a couple of things that come to mind was we try to get parole reform. Uh, that's with, we're still working on that today. And of course, as you know, that's when Albert Folston, um, unfortunately, uh, took the life of Ezio Ferrone here. He was out on parole when that occurred and he was on parole eight times. But yet mm-hmm. when you breach parole, there's no, there's no crime for that. It's mm-hmm. just a reporting requirement of which the parole officer has to report that to the parole board, and then they make the decision to revoke that parole and put that person back in. So we've been trying to lobby the government to make that a criminal uh, offense and to be there. But on the flip side, we've been successful too in lobbying the government because a number of years ago, uh, at the time, it was uh, Minister Ralph Goodell. Um, he approved, I forget the exact number on it, but it's for fallen officers. So if a member gets, gets fallen in the line of duty, uh, there's a monetary amount that's provided to the family to help them get support and help them through. We know money doesn't 
resolve the issue, the, the grief of losing mm-hmm. a loved one, but we know at least there's something there to help that family uh, move forward when the you know the loss that's out there. Uh, but we're continually within the CPA having meetings with the uh, Minister of Justice, uh, Public Safety, the Public Safety Committee, with under Tom Stamatakis, who's the president of the CPA. Uh, wealth of knowledge, and it's it's good knowing that an issue may pop up here, and uh, so we can make that phone call or email to our colleagues in um, in Ottawa, going, "Hey, this is this issue. Is anyone else seeing this?" And that's quite frequently. That's what's so important about the communication across the country, because something could happen in Montreal. And we'll get an email from the Brotherhood out there and they'll come across and go, hey, are you experiencing this issue in Alberta? What's going on in BC? Same with collective agreements. We share information because when we want to have uh, benefits that um, are beneficial to the members, it's nice to know what other agencies are acquiring. And um, and, and so that continues to be the benefit with that ongoing and open uh, correspondence. So what? where's the delineation between the association and the police service when it comes to lobbying? Because I would almost think would the police service not be the one that wants to go and lobby for law changes, maybe, or legislation? Well, the police services don't necessarily go on their own because they have to stay apolitical. They can't get involved. However, you do have the, so in Alberta, you have the Alberta Association Chiefs of Police, and you also have the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. Hmm. So they meet regularly, just like associations here, and they come up with um, their thoughts and processes, what would be beneficial for services and for public safety. So they will try to implement change as well. Um, so that's a, another mechanism that's being used. And um, we do work hand in hand sometimes with the uh, um, the Canadian Association Chiefs of Police, with the Canadian Police Association. And because uh, there's many topics that come up that we're in line and uh, we have mutual benefit to uh, for both the public safety and for, the, and for our membership. Okay. Um... So what would you say are some of the, the biggest issues right now that are kind of facing police? So I, I would imagine social media, use of force always comes up in that. Uh, what other issues are kind of the big well, ones right now that you're trying to either change perceptions or legislation to? There's, there's a couple of aspects, I think, that's right across the country. So just recently had a meeting in Fredericton with our, with our colleagues across the country. We noticed that Retention of members and recruitment is an issue from coast to coast to coast. And that's problematic. And, uh, of course, we're trying to think outside the box because historically, what are we trying to do? We almost like, I'll say use the term steal from one another because, you know, Halifax, we're sending a recruiting team to, say, Regina to try to recruit for people. Mm -hmm. We will send a recruiting team to Halifax to try to get somebody to come out. So um, I know they have been somewhat effective, um, but I think we got to think of new ideas. But, however... Um, it's very difficult to recruit because I can see why, because policing just in within itself is very demanding. Um, now you've got the public scrutiny from politicians and who don't actually take the time to get the full story or try to find what's going on. And they, uh, put a comment out there and of course they're a politician. So people are going to pay attention to mm-hmm. what he or she has to say. And, uh, they can make, put out misleading information or inaccurate, or they're not waiting for the full information to come out. Um, and, and so with, with the number of protests, with the number of complaints, the use of force that we're seeing, the level of guns that we're seeing, and the level of guns right across the country is up everywhere as well. So I know it, it would be very hard for recruiting and retention when you are criticized nonstop, and uh, that affects morale. And so that's a, an ongoing issue right across, the, uh, right across the country and specifically here in Edmonton. Um, another issue that I see across the country too is in regards to mental health. Um, you know, we're very, very good 
at taking care of our members with a broken leg or broken arm. And um, what I see an issue is that they're not, there's still that stigma attached or people don't realize the effects this profession has on everyone. And I look at it this way. It's because I know people like to use PTSD or PTSI, right? And that's the most common that you hear of. It's only in this profession, it's only a matter of time before you acquire some type of disorder. What I mean by disorder is it could be PTSD, it could be anxiety, it could be depression, mm -hmm. it could be sleeping issues, eating issues. Um, you know, a lot of people have um, digestive issues, right? So, or a combination of everything. And, uh, and I think what services need to get around, I find they're very, very good at talking the talk. They don't walk the walk because um, we have to become, I think, I would like Edmonton to become leaders in the country here to really step up their game and provide treatment for members going through their, their issues. Because um, right now, for example, we have to go, if you go through WCB with a claim and uh, you're... WCB accepts your claim, and then you're getting pushed off to, say, the Newly Institute for uh, treatment. Um, the issue is that, with, like, right now in Alberta, WCB says you have to be with a clinical psychologist. You can't be with um, somebody with occupational help who, um, I'm trying to forget the name, but they're more therapists as well, which they can be trained. So, for example, in New Brunswick, if you mm -hmm. go to the Newly Institute, you, you may start with a clinical psychologist, but you have um, you have trained um, people that are there that can take the program and continue with it. So in Alberta, I like to find out from WCB why that is, why is it limitations? Because there's only so many psychologists here in, in the province, and that puts a limitation on members and acquiring help. So and, instead of waiting for just the, the one specialist, can other people at least manage it yes. or deal with certain aspects of whatever it is that needs to be dealt with in the meantime. Yeah, so go under the guidance of your clinical psychologist, but the clinical psychologist will tell their staff, this is the treatment that the person needs. Follow these steps and help mm -hmm. that member through it. Um, so I know I'd like to see that change up around here. Uh, another issue too that I see is we have a member that um, is doing very, very well, performing excellent, like they should as per their training, and say they get into an issue with use of force, use of force, use of force, and then they go under for investigation. And when they come to the association for help, we start dig, you know, peeling back the onion and going, what's going on with you? And they talk about the trauma that they've witnessed, the issues that's going on. And so we end up sending that member for an assessment and they come back and they, they're diagnosed with you know a mental disorder due to the effects of the job. Mm. And uh, sometimes, you know, we hear the comment, well, isn't it convenient that a member is on stress leave now because they're under trouble for investigation? And I want to turn that around and go, well, wait a minute. Why is it this member is performing excellent? And then there's a time period within a six-month or four-month period that this member is starting to act differently, behave differently, and no one steps in and goes, what's going on? But right? is that, that's the same argument that, um, you know, say this person with the knife in the shelter district, well, they get pushed down. It's like, oh, well, you know, they have trauma and other things they're dealing with and they're acting out today. So it's, it's no different uh, from one side or the other. No, we want the citizens to get help or have been suffering from mental health mm -hmm. and no different from our membership, right? Because it's um, over a 20, low, average 25 year career. It's only a matter of time. And I got to thank, uh, I think Dr. Nick Carlton out of Sipsert and Regina, he sums it up uh, perfectly. 
when you first get on or when things are going well in life, you're sleeping well, you're eating well, your family's doing well, you just get married, you got, you know, new family starting. Okay. And you can handle the stress when you go to a collision or another collision or another collision. Now let's change this up. You're on shift work. You're working nights. Uh, a loved one is diagnosed with, uh, you know, say cancer. Uh, your son or daughter is getting bullied in school. Um, you know, your, your parent is sick. So now you show up to the next collision and you go, oh my God, that vehicle reminds me of my partner's. And there's hypothetically, you know, a dead child in the back seat, and that child reminds you so much of, say, your daughter or your son, and that mm -hmm. hits you. But and for policing on the front line, but what do you do? You take that call and you go directly to the next call. There's no debrief. There's no de-stressing. There's no opportunity to go see, um, to get help for that. And it's just call to call to call to call to call, and this builds up and plays an effect on members. And, uh, and I think that's what's missing. With uh, with management right across the uh, right across the country mm -hmm. that they don't realize that's going on and like I know in Edmonton I, I love EFAS Employee Family Assistance Program that we have in early intervention but it's almost like it's up to the member to go seek help well it's like a, a frog in a pot of water you turn that pot on it starts to boil you don't realize it's boiling the next thing you know you're you're yeah. in it yeah right so that's why I go. We have mandatory uh, weapons qualifications, mandatory fitness training. We have mandatory GDM days. Well, where's the independent, um, I don't like to use the word mandatory because it sounds like it's um, um, discipline-wise, but where's the mandatory health checks on members, especially in patrol? We have it in major areas such as uh, ICE, uh, you know, for child exploitation, sexual assault unit, uh, child protection, where they have to go get an assessment every six months. Frontline members should be the exact same way because they're mm -hmm. the ones who are seeing it day after day, hour after hour with zero break and zero opportunity to de-stress. And yeah, and I, that, I think that comes down to some of the management too. So your sergeant or staff sergeant, um, if they're just pushing everybody, take the next call, take the next call, you know, give your people a break <laughs> and make sure you pay attention to your people and yep. just kind of know, see if you can notice uh, some cues maybe. Yeah, 100%. And, um, and of course, with in here in Edmonton, right across the country too, staffing levels are at critical, so you're at minimum. So it's very hard for a member to come forward and go, you know, I'm really suffering right now. I'm having a difficult time. And it's hard for a member to state that because they're afraid, am I going to be removed from the street? What's the stigma going to be attached to me? And so we're still working on that aspect. But how do you get time off when you're at minimum staffing? The mm -hmm. only avenue you have is a colon sick. So I think it's a good transition into some of the advocacy work. I know you're part of a lot of different groups, especially on the uh, dealing with some of the mental health. And can you talk about a, a bit about some of the the group work you've done? Um, yeah, so I, I'm drawing a blank on some of the names, but um, I was for a number of years part of the, uh, they've changed your name, but I'm part of the Critical Incident Stress Management Team. And their goal is to train every first responder in the province uh, in SISM training. So, um, because we're fortunate in large areas such as Edmonton and Calgary, because we have resources, like I talked about EFAS and we have, you know, list of, um, psychologists and counselors that we can see, but what about those first responders in a small town who volunteer when somebody, if like you and I could be hypothetically truck drivers during the day and then the evening we volunteer for the fire department or lo your local EMS, whatever the case may be, if there's an incident in your town and you respond. And it's a devastating incident. You know, you think, I think about, um, um, what was the year that the bush crash out in Saskatchewan? Um, the multiple. Uh, with Humboldt? Yes, thank you. 
And I think about Humboldt, the, the number of volunteers that showed up and responded to that. Mm-hmm. Where is the assistance for those members? Because you and I, we finish that, we go back home to our loved ones and our family, and we go back the next day driving their, say, driving a truck, for example. Yeah. There's zero SISM training. There's zero help for those besides what trying to call a telephone number and try to get a hold of somebody. And uh, so the goal there of um, of, of the um, the group that I was with was to train every first responder in Alberta in SISM training. So you have peer to peer to support. Mm-hmm. And so I was very proud to take that on and, and, and be there for a number of years and co-chair that. Um, but I find with the demands with here in, in the EPA, I had to step away from that. Um, but another one is I just recently stepped up. So um, with uh, SIPCERT and that's uh, trying to get that peer to peer network again and is try to help out uh, first responders uh, right across the uh, country. So that's the goal is to get that SISM training to get that peer support. Uh, so that's a couple of areas. And I just try to advocate here within the membership all the time. Um, I tell the story of my own issues where um, a colleague of mine actually broke into my locker and um, was going to take my gun because he thought I was going to commit suicide. So my goal is, because uh, I went off work for just over five months and um, I had suicidal thoughts and tendencies and um, got diagnosed with uh, major anxiety and depression. And um, I know my counselor probably would hate me for saying this now of, um, you know, with vicarious trauma and, and then PTSD. And the way I look at it, what I went through, I never ever, which I'm still going through, but I don't want another colleague to go down that dark hole where I was because that was a place that I, I never want to go down again. It was dreadful. And I know that there's our colleagues who are out there suffering and they're suffering in silence. Mm-hmm. And so every time I attend a function or attend um, a parade, I usually end it with look after one another because if you don't, who will? And mm-hmm. we need to look after one another. It's so, so important out there. Especially the people closest to you on the day-to-day. You know, who who better to know your cues or a change in behavior or just how you're acting, right? Yeah. It's because um, recently, as you know, the member that was struck uh, doing a traffic enforcement Mm. Uh, and he's currently in hospital and our, our thoughts are still with him and I know he's healing. He just had his first operation. I'm not going to mention his name, but uh, we're thinking of you, my friend. But uh, I reached out to his squad because his squad witnessed it. The squad was there to provide first aid to to him. And I can tell you some members are feeling guilt over that because they're going, why didn't I see the bike before? Why didn't I step in? Now, and, and I think that's a loss. People forget about that as, as a witness officer. You feel the guilt and the trauma of it because you're going, I should have been there. I should have stepped mm. in, right? And and that eats you. So I want to make sure I reach out to the members and say, hey, it's okay if you're feeling those. That's a normal response. But I, I want you to know that there's help available. Don't suffer in silence. It's kind of that survivor's guilt. Yes, perfect. It's along perfect, those lines. You betcha. Um, so what is kind of in the future for you? Where are things, you got mm, a year and a couple months left in your president role and then uh what's after that uh very good question um i think everything has a shelf life and um i've enjoyed every day in here there's been some extreme challenges um i don't think the members understand how busy it is and the demands are in here because your phone doesn't stop it's 24 7. don't be wrong i signed up for this i wanted this but mm-hmm. it takes its toll but uh, i know there's some Great young members coming up on the board that uh, I see a bright future and it's time to, uh, I guess, pass the torch on 
and carry on because I look back at my predecessors from Pete Ratcliffe and, you know, Tony Simeone was a mentor to me. And, you know, Bob Walsh was there and uh, I've had some great people on this board, Maurice Berger, um, you know, Curtis Hoople. There's so many colleagues out there that I, I think highly up. And um, they've helped me through the way and uh, through my ups and downs. But I, uh, it's going to be a time for me to move on. I'll go back to the service wherever HR decides to put me and um, just help from that end. But it's, it'll be time to move on here. But I'm, I love every second in here. Do you know what you're going to try to go back to when you get back on the, the street? or Because uh, you're coming out as a staff sergeant. Uh, any particular role you're looking for? Oh, there's a couple of things in mind, but uh, at the end of the day, it's, um, you know, members' wellness has always been always so important to me, and I'd like to be in some capacity to help them in that way. But I haven't been placed yet by HR, so HR will determine where they need me, and mm. uh, wherever it will be as a watch commander or whatever the case may be, I'll take that on and I'll do the best that I can. But I know that uh, the association's ingrained in me, so I know... Um, Wherever I end up, I'll still be looking at for the members' wellness and um, watching their reports to make sure that they're protected uh, for, for the police act and the regs. That's good to hear. Um, so we're kind of coming up to the end of the time, so I keep you around about an hour. Um, how can people best connect with you, reach out to you, follow whatever you're putting out there? Yeah, um, I try to stay active on social media. Of course, the membership can try to get hold of me anytime via email or phone. Uh, but I'm on Instagram. Um, I think I'm under like, I can't remember. I think it's like Mike Elliott underscore EPA, I think. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at, um, at AFPA Elliott, A-F-P-A-E-L-L-I-O-T-T. And that's the main two areas that I, I focus on to uh, educate and provide perspective uh, to to the people out there. But it's people got to realize, too, that social media is its own beast. Um, and I think we often forget, too, that we think that's the bulk of the population, which is mm-hmm. which is not. So I just use social media as an avenue, just an additional avenue to put information out and to dispel myths and provide perspective because I think the citizens, especially the membership, deserve to have their side told. Yeah. Yeah, I would highly caution people not to use social media as their uh, go-to for news. No, definitely 100% not on that, my friend. So, all right. Well, appreciate you coming in today and we'll look to have you on maybe more frequently and get some more updates. No, I appreciate it, Nathan. Thank you so, so much. Great. Thanks.